Shalom. I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Uh, hello, I'm Mark Scarborough, the sudden Christian in the group, and together, Bruce and I have written 35 cookbooks, including the Instant Pot Bible. Oh, did I mention it? That's a huge bestseller. You should check it out if you get an Instant Pot, the Instant Pot Bible. And we've also written vegetarian dinner parties, believe it or not, a fancy up and up market book all about making vegetarian food that is fit for your next dinner party. Check that book out wherever books are sold. But in today's episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark, we're going to talk about, well, yes, shalom food or <laughs> Jewish food because mm. we're getting close to Passover. We're <laughs> <laughs> this is really absurd. I can feel the absurdity setting in on me already. Oh, I could feel the internet setting in on me uh, yeah. with the ads and the fighting and oh the infighting. So anyway, we're going to have our one-minute cooking tip. Bruce is going to have a great interview about kosher recipes. Oh, can't wait, actually, for that. Actually, I can't wait because I have this thing about kosher food. Um, and we're going to talk about what's making us happy this week in food. So you know, let me let me start us off since you, you came racing out of the gate with shalom (laughs) let me start us off and say that i am old enough to remember when i knew what chinese food was and when i knew what southern food was when i knew what indian food was and what i mean by that is i am old enough to remember when people basically said italian they meant certain things and thank heavens the food world has changed we've evolved right we've just become knowledgeable now i know that the you know chinese food isn't chinese food for example my niece loves panda express's orange chicken and i assure you that after oh five and seven years of bruce's obsessing over sichuan and various chinese quote unquote recipes i turn up my nose at panda express's orange chicken and yet at the same time i know that it represents chinese food for some people because it's a north american version of chinese food that is incredibly popular so what this is all around to say that we're going to talk about Jewish food, and I well understand <laughs> that what we're talking about, and I'm, the Christian is setting this up here, is we are talking about Ashkenazi food as sieved through Brooklyn and the Bronx. What I love so much is that <laughs> the goy on the other side of this microphone is talking about Jewish food when most non-Jews have no idea what Jewish food even means. And there are, listen, there are hundreds of kinds of Jewish yeah. food. Kashrut or kosher rules tend to be standardized, although not, um, just talk about Sephardic people and what they do at Passover. So although not completely, uh, but there are lots of different kinds of quote unquote Jewish food. There's Ethiopian Jewish food, there's Sephardic Jewish food, there's Ladino uh, right. uh, Jewish food. But what we're talking about is Ashkenazi food as sieved through Brooklyn and the Bronx, which is mostly how North Americans experience Jewish food. Yeah, it's what we get when we go into the kosher delis and into the appetizing stores um, oh, in there's North a word America. For you. Appetizing. I didn't know that word existed until I moved to New York. Appetizing. Like, Bruce said to me, do you want to go to the appetizing store? I'm like, uh... What's a non-appetizing <laughs> store? Does one actually buy food at non-appetizing stores? If you don't know stores? what that means, that's a store that sells 
um, all the smoked fish, lox and smoked mm. salmon and herring and white fish and mm. then the cream cheeses. And if you go to New York, you can go to the stuff. appetizing counter at Zabar's. It's appetizing. It is appetizing. And I guess all the other counters at Zabar's are not appetizing. Well, I want to say something else about traditional Jewish foods before we start. That these are not foods just eaten on the holidays, no. right? That that people who are religious, who follow Jewish food laws, or even who just like the traditional foods, eat all year long. Right. I mean, right. right. So uh, I I want I, I want to tell a story. Okay. Uh, I start through a story. You can finish it because it's your story, really. But I want to say a story. So at the holidays, at the great Jewish holiday of Christmas, <laughs> we were. <laughs> Christmas is the time when everyone in the world celebrates the birth of Jesus. <laughs> Apparently. So we were at my brother's house in St. Louis for Christmas, where my brother lives. And we did not know that there was a large kosher and orthodox population in St. Louis. And we had no idea. Bruce's cousin lives there, but that's one guy. So we didn't know that there was... My cousin Yaakov. Yeah, we didn't know that there was a huge population. But there were... My mother wanted to go out to dinner one night. And I was uncomfortable with it because of COVID. Sorry if that offends you in any way, but I'm just telling you that I was uncomfortable going to Chili's, which I knew everyone was going to be unmasked. And Bruce and I are still COVID virgins. I feel, as I've said a million (laughs) times, that we are the virgins in the temple sacrifice queue who are hanging out against the back wall, hoping not to be noticed. It's always about the back wall of the temple, isn't it? (laughs) It's always. Anything Jewish comes down to the walls of the temple. There were virgins sacrifice. In Jewish law, so you don't I, know. You don't no, know. You weren't there. I, I pretty much know, and I pretty much think you just were really offensive. But okay. <laughs> um, so anyway, my mom wanted to go out to Chili's, and I didn't want to, so I didn't know what to do. So I was trolling around the internet, and I found all these kosher delicatessens, and I thought, oh, that's it. We'll just order kosher deli. Okay, now you can tell us. So I went to this place called Cones, and it was like. So amazing. I texted Mark that I felt like I had just stepped into Tel Aviv. He did. And he said, I'm in Tel Aviv, not Missouri. And I went with Mark's brother's wife, my sister-in-law. She is not Jewish, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> she is a shiksa from Oklahoma. And we get into cones, and I ordered so much shiksas come from Oklahoma. Crazy amount of delicious stuff. We got chopped liver and pastrami and all this great stuff. And the first thing she said to me was, why is this place so crowded? Hanukkah's over. And I was like, okay, Jews eat all year round. It's really like, it's not just on holidays. So we got all of our stuff and we're getting ready to leave. And we'd been talking to the owner and it was really nice, Lenny. And we were talking to Lenny. And then she whispered, Jennifer whispered to me. So I don't know, it's after Hanukkah. What do I say when we leave? And I said, how about goodbye? (laughs) (laughs) Say goodbye. Say good night, Gracie. So, <laughs> say Merry Christmas. That'll go over oh, well. That'll go over well. So let's let's look at what was in those counters there. Right, centuries, centuries of religious dietary law has led right. to what we see in those cases now, and right. it's the laws of kashrut of keeping kosher. And you should know that the laws of keeping kosher are, while seemingly set are, what do we want to say, malleable by which rabbinical tradition you Mm -hmm. follow. And again, how kosher is mostly practiced in the United States is, I've said this a thousand times, is an Ashkenazi tradition 
as sieved through parts of New York City. And it's a specific thing even unto itself. And other Jews around the world would not necessarily recognize the same kosher laws, kosher laws, although they're close. They're all close to each other. So just a quick rundown and a little history of what it is. It all comes from Leviticus and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Basically, it says it only... Oh, no, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm going to stop you right there. No Jew can say the Old Testament. Say it right. But I married a goy, so... Say it right. It comes from Torah. There you Uh, go. Thank you. Five books of Moses. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe that I'm having to educate you in your Judaism. Please go on. I will remind you of what my grandfather said after my reformed Jewish bar mitzvah. (laughs) He went to my father and said, where's the real one? Did he say it in that accent? That's what I want to know. Probably. Okay, so So yes, they come from Torah. And it says only certain types of mammals, birds, and fish are kosher, right? So you can't eat pork or frogs or shellfish. Oh, no, frogs. Oh, come on. I have, we have a very fancy friend up here where we live in rural New England, and she's a very, very fancy person and has a beautiful house, is always gorgeously dressed, and she claims to love to fish for frogs because of her Missouri roots. So I'm hoping for frogs in my future, but you can't have them you on a kosher menu. And even the animals and birds that you are allowed to eat have to be slaughtered according to a process known as shekita. The blood must be drained completely. You right. cannot consume blood. It must be removed by salting the right. meat and then soaking it in water. And the other things that come up are not mixing milk and meat. Yeah, that's a that's from a Torah law that is basically never boil an animal in its mother's milk. And over time, this has come to be reinterpreted. It's probably some kind of uh, Canaanitic or uh, other religious practice from a neighboring uh, society. And it's come now to be practiced, though, as you can't mix meat and dairy. There's also the problem of the sciatic nerve, and that actually comes from Genesis. That comes from God wrestling Jacob, uh, and God wrestles Jacob one night. They wrestle until dawn, and it appears that Jacob is going to beat God. I love this story. It's just so insane. It appears that Jacob may be about to beat God in the wrestling match, and so God pulls a trick on Jacob and unhinges his thigh. Oh, that's cheating. It is That's cheating. really cheating. He, he touches his thigh loser. and what un- a soul loser. <laughs> un- unhinges <laughs> it. And because of that, it's now translated as a sciatic nerve problem. So you can't, you, you could technically eat the meat, I think some rabbis say, around the sciatic nerve, but you have to dissect out the sciatic nerve and all its channels, which is basically down your legs, which is why, it's, first of all, that is so time-consuming and grueling. No one would ever do that. And B, that's basically why in kashrut you don't eat the back end of an animal. It's because the sciatic nerve sitting back down there. There are other reasons too, but it's part of the reason. So that leads to a dichotomy in Jewish food, whether you're going to have your meat meal or your dairy meal. And I'm very pleased to tell you that in this discussion of kashrut, I can bring up Thomas Aquinas. (laughs) Because what Thomas Aquinas would say was because we have two 
opposites, antinomies, those two opposites create, as I love to say, and as Aquinas loved to say, a tertium quid, a third thing, or as we say in our house, a tertium squid. A tertium... <laughs> no, squid is not kosher. A tertium quid, and that tertium quid is parv. It's the third thing created by the two opposites that sits in the middle. It is that basically something that is neither meat nor dairy, let's say like eggs. Yep, and you can use eggs whether you're cooking with meat or dairy. And so you have your dairy favorites like blintzes and rugelach. And rugelach is usually dairy because you put cream cheese in the dough. You got your meat favorites like brisket and stuffed breast of veal. In Ashkenazi tradition yes, in, in, as practiced through the Bronx and Brooklyn. I just want to keep saying and, this. And also, I would dare say Chicago. Remember, my grandparents yeah, and great-grandparents sure. were koshers that emigrated from Russia right to Chicago where they opened big kosher butchers. So it's yeah, also... It's also in the Midwest. You're right. Of course, of course. The second oldest synagogue in the United States is in Savannah, Georgia. So, of course, there are other places where this happened. But I think the bulk of the weight of how delis are practiced, and even if there are dairy restaurants in any cities, which I highly doubt, except maybe there's one in St. Louis that I don't know about. But, okay, <laughs> um, the, the dairy restaurants, I think it's mostly that New York tradition. So can we make this even more complicated? Well, of course, it's Jewish food. So it gets <laughs> really complicated because then you add Passover. Passover is one of the major holidays and it shifts around when it is based on, you know, the moon calendar. And this year it's coming in April, which is coming up soon. And here's the thing about Passover. You know, you eat matzah, right? I'm sure you've heard about matzah, the unleavened bread, but you're traditionally supposed to clean out your house from all other grain products that mm. could possibly contain mm. leavening agents. My favorite thing, my favorite, absolute favorite thing is the people who say, ah, oh, screw it, I'm not cleaning up my house, and they go to a hotel <laughs> for, uh, <laughs> for Passover. That is my favorite you are now talking about my aunt. thing. But she, you know, I'm not cleaning my house out because you're supposed to clean literally every corner. I mean, literally every corner of every cabinet, mm -hmm. lest there be any grain product in there that could possibly ferment and cause leavening, cause rising. So you're supposed to give your house a thorough cleaning, which is a nice idea to do in the spring. But yeah. honestly, I love the people that are just like, no, I'm going to the Fountain Blue in, in Florida. And then what do you do with all that Captain Crunch and all that other <laughs> stuff that you have to get rid of? You're supposed to burn it. Um, a lot of religious Jews sell it. Um, my grandparents used to throw it out, but then as they got older and they just got cheaper and didn't want to get rid of it, <laughs> they came to duct tape the cabinets closed. Mm, yeah, and so that was right. another way around it. Yeah, it's it's always around it. If, if you, uh, sometimes when we drive into New York from New England, we'll actually just happen to be driving in right before Passover. And you can see some of the synagogues, the shuls, along the West Side Highway in the Bronx, and they have big cans out in front burning. They are and, burning their chumets, as it's called. Yep, they're burning them out out in front of the shuls that so you bring you know your leftover bread and flour and all that stuff and throw it in the fire um it makes a black smoky mess to say the <laughs> least well passover is really interesting not only do you have to get rid of all that stuff then you have to have separate dishes remember we had our meat dishes and our dairy dishes well now you have to have two more sets just for passover because they have to be your passover dishes mm. And the first two nights of Passover, you have the meal is called a Seder. And it is a meal where you eat these traditional foods. You often eat brisket. You eat matzo ball soup. You may have some chopped liver. Um, and 
during this meal, this Seder, you tell the story of the exodus from Egypt. And there's always something in the middle of the table called a Seder plate, which has symbolic ingredients. And Mark has put such an amazing twist on Passover for oh, us. Oh, don't you blame this on the goy. He goyesha eyes Passover, and, oh. I, and even my mother loves it enough that she does this now. You want me to say what it is? Yeah, say what it is. Oh, my gosh. Um, we serve a coursed meal in which each course involves one thing from the Seder plate. So we don't do the traditional brisket and, I don't know, whatever, and carrots and matzo ball soup and chopped liver. We do a meal in which Bruce creatively comes up with things based on the plate. So, for example, when we got when we get to the celery, we Bruce did a you get us you know there's a lot of things on the plate, so it's a big meal. So you get a little bit of stir fried celery and tofu in mm. spicy Chinese sauce. It's kind of this weird way that we play around with the seder plate and create a meal out of the seder plate. I feel horrible. I don't even want to admit to this because I feel that I have Christianized the whole thing. Bruce and I, I should add, are not religious, and so we're not actually holding to religious traditions here, but we're trying to keep alive traditional practices. So thus, we have a Christmas tree and a menorah at the same moment. So we, we've created our own version of these traditions, which I really like. And if you're interested in having a Seder, if you're interested in exploring some of these Ashkenazi Jewish foods that I grew up loving from tongue to brisket, <laughs> to stuffed cabbage. Tongue, I mm. love that. That's going to bring them in. Tongue, I love tongue sandwiches, <laughs> but that's going to bring them in. Well, there are plenty <laughs> of really good Jewish cookbooks out there. Like my old copy of the Ratner's Dairy Restaurant Cookbook is a go-to for me for meatless meals. That little paperback is yellowed and crumbling and falling apart, but I love it. I still go to it. And later in this episode... I am going to talk to Kim Kushner, author of Modern Table Kosher Recipes for Everyday Gatherings. You'll notice every day, not just on the holidays. And you can start to explore some of the fabulous foods that I grew up with. Before we get to all this, let me just say that it would be a good time for you to subscribe to this podcast, to like it, give it a good rating. If you can give it a comment, that would be fine. Please don't yell at me for uh, for goyishizing. <laughs> Jewish holidays. I know what I'm doing, and it's not very smart, but I'm still doing it anyway. So um, <laughs> sorry about all that. And yes, we do, in fact, know that the Jewish foods that we're talking about do not represent Jewish food, but one version of a traditional Jewish meal that is part of Bruce's past. And um, thanks for letting us have a little fun with that. And up next, segment two, our one-minute cooking tip. When you're baking, set your timer for a few minutes fewer than the specified time in the recipe. Yes, this is really crucial. I think that this is something that I always do, and I want to say that you should include it in your cooking practices. If a recipe says, uh, you know, uh, bake the cookies for 40 minutes, I always set the timer for, I don't know, 34 minutes or 35 minutes. I never set it for 40 minutes because I want to remind myself to check them because uh, uh, as we always say, you can always add more time, but 
Overdone is forever. There you go. And it's the absolute truth with cooking across the board, not just cookies and baked goods, but even things that get shoved in the oven, like, let's say, a pork tenderloin. If the recipe says, you know, put the pork tenderloin in the oven for an hour, I don't know, I'm making this up, an hour, you know what? Set your timer for 50 minutes and check the temperature of it at 50 minutes and see where you are. Okay, up next, segment three, Bruce's interview with Kim Kushner, the author of Modern Table Kosher Recipes for Everyday Gatherings. We have talked enough about our weird non-traditional kosher meals. Kim is going to tell us all about kosher cooking. Today, I'm talking with Kim Kushner, the best-selling cookbook author of I Heart Kosher, The New Kosher, and The Modern Menu. Kim learned to cook from her Moroccan-born mother and spent summers with the family in Israel. She graduated from the Institute of Culinary Education in Manhattan, and she has a brand new book out, which I'm very excited to talk to her about, Modern Table, Kosher Recipes for Everyday Gatherings. Hey, Kim. Hi, thank you for having me. My pleasure. So I have to say right off the bat that the recipes in your book are not what most people think about when they think kosher food. You've got ginger scallion soup with mushrooms and chilies. You've got veal milanese with lemon and arugula. So I want to ask off the top, how difficult was it to expand your palate and what you share within the restrictions of a kosher diet? So I'll be honest with you. I have always followed a kosher diet. And so I've never viewed it as restrictions and what I can't, cannot eat. The way I always look at it is what can I use? What ingredients can I work with? And I think that sometimes the lines are blurred between kosher cooking and Jewish cuisine, kosher cuisine and Jewish cuisine, because kosher really just refers to dietary restrictions. So as you said, there are things that I cannot use when I'm cooking kosher food. Like I cannot combine dairy with meat. So I wouldn't be able to grill a steak with butter, for example. But there are so, so, so many ingredients that I could work with. And I grew up in a home. My mom is from Morocco and she cooked a very Mediterranean diet. And it was colorful and flavorful and plentiful. And it was never viewed as a restriction. So I always have been exposed to lots of flavors and colors and different types of cuisine. And I just apply those dietary laws in my cooking and I make it work. Earlier in this episode, Mark and I talked about traditional Ashkenazi Jewish foods that I grew up with from brisket and stuffed cabbage and stuffed breast of veal. And that's what so many people think of as just what Jewish food is. Right. Um, and being able to describe the difference between kosher and just Jewish cuisine is really important. I like that you've expanded what a lot of us think about that can be kosher cuisine. Your food is the kind that brings people together. It's great for entertaining. And you talk about in your book, the act of doing that, bringing people together at your table is just as important as the food you prepare. Where does that come from for you? I think that's something that I grew up with. My family growing up at home as a young child, the table was always packed and there were always extra folding chairs brought to the table. And some of my best memories are of being around the table, eating, laughing and sharing a meal because I feel that when you sit around and you share a meal, you end up sharing so much more than just that meal. It's the conversations, the connections. 
something magical happens. That's what I love. And I think particularly in the last few years, it's something that a lot of us missed out on. The meal beyond even sharing it goes beyond the food. Right. And you you talk about that in your book. It's about creating a table, an environment. Share some tips for me for creating and layering a gorgeous table that gets people's excitement even before the food comes out. Setting a beautiful table is something that I'm passionate about. And it always starts with a clean blank slate. So perhaps a white tablecloth. And then I layer it on either with beautiful dishes or simple dishes. I really love mixing and matching. In my home, I use little trinkets that are from dollar stores. And then I have family heirlooms that I'll mix together. But anything from herbs from my garden or um, leftover flowers from an arrangement that was sent to me. Even last night, we we had Valentine's dinner and I went to the deli and I bought a, a bouquet of roses and I just scattered them on the table with some friends. And it ended up being fun because those roses were placed for an aesthetic reason and it was beautiful. But by the end of the night, people were throwing them around, holding them in their mouths. It was just, it, it creates an atmosphere. And it's not about perfection and it's not about spending a ton of money or being very fancy. It's just about little touches that elevate it and create a vibe. I'm sure you know a lot of people like to cook for friends and they're really good with four people, maybe even six people. What advice do you have for people who find themselves having to cook for a larger crowd, but it scares them? Well, I understand that it's scary because feeding a lot of people is overwhelming. Um, but I think whether you're cooking for two or four or 14, really being organized is key. And there are always things that you can do ahead of time. And the things that you can prepare ahead of time should be prepared ahead of time. You can cut up a fruit platter and prepare a beautiful fruit platter and have it in the fridge so that that's ready for dessert. You can wash all your lettuce and your greens and have all the elements prepared so that when it's time to put it together, it just takes a couple of minutes. But I think the best thing when you're cooking for a large crowd is to cook things that don't need to be prepared just ahead of time. So I would suggest items that could be slow cooked like braises or meatballs or a slow cooked roast or a chili or a stew or soups that can just be kept on the stovetop on a low temperature and they're ready to go. And you don't really need to do too much fussing before you serve it. Now, you encourage people in your book to take risks when they cook. You say recipes are not written in stone. What do you mean by that? So I've spent a lot of time, a big part of my business has been teaching cooking classes. And it's always blown my mind that I have these wonderfully intelligent, experienced, well-traveled individuals who will come to my cooking class and they have a look of fear on their faces and they're taking notes so carefully and they're writing things down. And I, and I try to express to them, you know, just first of all, the best part about cooking and the best, the way to ensure that your food is going to taste the most delicious is if you try to enjoy yourself while you're cooking. And I think that people are so afraid of skipping ingredients or doing something wrong where, you know, it's, it's not so technical, especially cooking. You know, baking is another story, even though I do think there is a lot of leeway with baking. When it comes to cooking, if, you know, a lot of people say to me, I can't make that recipe of yours because I don't like garlic. 
So I said, well, how about if you just skip the garlic? Do you like onions? You can use onions or you can use neither. Or, you know, I love that salad recipe, but nobody in my family eats cilantro. So how about you replace the cilantro with parsley? You know, and when you and and people will say, really, you can do that. It won't change the entire thing. And I say it will change it, but it might change it for the better. You know, and I actually love a lot of people will send me um, adjustments that they've made to my recipes. And I end up taking them on because I think they work even better than the original recipe. I think it's great to encourage people not only to make those changes, but to give you feedback on what they did. The conversation between you and the people cooking your recipes is so important for you too, as a chef and as an author. So let's talk about desserts. When you think about kosher desserts, it stymies a lot of people. People don't know what to do once you tell them they can't bake without butter. And most of the desserts in your book are either dairy-free or can be made dairy-free. And yet they all look super rich and indulgent from your lemon poppy seed swirl cake to your chocolate hazelnut celebration cake. So what words of wisdom can you give to encourage people to know that there's a world of desserts and baking without butter? There absolutely is a world of desserts and baking without butter. And there are so many more products and ingredients today that we didn't use 20 years ago, or most of us did not at least. So using olive oil, in in a beautiful pound cake or using coconut oil is wonderful as well, which I use a lot of the time too. There are even products like back when I was growing up, my mother made all her desserts using margarine. She probably still does. I don't own, I don't keep margarine in the fridge. I have, there are such great products. There's a product called Betterine, which is like sticks of butter made from coconut oil. And it works so, the texture is perfect. The taste is there. You don't taste the coconut in it. It really works as a butter. But more often than not, I just stick to desserts that are, for example, a beautiful meringue or beautiful bowls of berries with shaved dark chocolate over them. I mean, cakes that can be made using light olive oils or richer olive oils work very well as well. So I really think the possibilities are endless. There's, you know, so many people in this day and age follow different diets, whether they're gluten-free, dairy-free, you know, they don't eat this or they do eat that. So there's so much available to you. And we've been exposed to the endless possibilities of cooking delicious, healthy foods um, without using some of these fats. So it's really great. Well, I think that you're what you're offering people in terms of the recipes for these and beyond that, just the jumping off point, the inspiration to create fabulous desserts, beautiful tables, meals with friends that will be remembered forever. Kim Kushner, all these recipes in your new book, Modern Table Kosher Recipes for Everyday Gatherings. Thank you for sharing some insight with us and thank you for this beautiful book. Thank you so much. Okay, Bruce, that was, again, fabulous. I learned so much in these interviews. Over the course of this podcast, I have to tell you that these interviews have altered the way we cook, and we've written 35 cookbooks, and we have shifted our game on certain kinds of Sichuan food. We've shifted our game on eggs. We've shifted our game on pizza. Maybe we're going to shift our game on kosher food now. These interviews have always taught me so much. So finally, our traditional last segment of the podcast, What's Making Us Happy in Food This Week? Duck sauce. 
duck sauce. This goes back to when I was a kid and we went to Chinese restaurants oh. and on the table with those little Mugu fried wonton things. I'm feeling the Mugu Gai Pan a and the bowl egg of, Fu Young. A bowl of spicy <laughs> mustard and a bowl of duck sauce. And you dip the crunchy fried things in the duck sauce. You'd also put it all on egg rolls. Well, I buy... Duck gold's sauce. duck sauce. I think every Jewish home in Queens had a quart of gold's duck sauce. Oh, what about Saucy Susan? Saucy Susan was for the barbecue, oh. and duck sauce was for <laughs> dipping. I love their differentiations in these grotesquely sweet sauces. And I have been keeping <laughs> duck sauce in the refrigerator, and this is this is what's going to kill you. So what I've been dipping in it is both potato chips and Fritos. Because oh. you get crunchy, greasy, salty dipped in the sweet duck sauce. Mm, I just threw up a little in my mouth. <laughs> That's making me happy. Oh, my God. That is just, well, I don't know what to say. What's but... making you happy? <laughs> I don't think I have anything that can follow that up. Okay, what's making me happy in food this week? And it's so snotty, I'm embarrassed to even say it. So I'm just going to tell you that what's making me happy in food this week is... All the work Bruce did last summer to make homemade jam because oh. we have a house full of sour cherry and strawberry jam, blueberry jam, uh, well, black currant jelly. I'm going to interject and say Mark grew those black currants. I did. Red currant jelly. We have all these jellies. We have pear preserves. And you know what? It is so great. And I know that it takes a great deal of effort in the middle of the summer to make these things because, of course, it's 100 billion degrees Fahrenheit. We're dying of heat. The kitchen is full of steam from boiling water to sanitize the jars. And yet all winter long, I have all of these fresh preserves. And it is an amazing thing to have a little bit of summer in the middle of the winter sitting on my piece of toast as I eat breakfast. It's a nice thing. Um, the sour cherry is particularly fine this year. The apricot is usually my favorite. This year it's my sour. It's the sour cherry. So that's what's making me happy in food this week. So that's our podcast. We were a little bit too irreverent about kosher foods. We gave a one-minute cooking tip. We told you what was making us happy with food this week. And Bruce talked to Kim Kushner, author of Modern Table. So what should you do you should go to our facebook group cooking with bruce and mark and join the group and join the fun and you should subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode and we will see you back here next time on cooking with bruce and mark <laughs>